Hello and welcome to another one of those podcast-only editions of the Culture File Weekly, because airing this week in our Saturday home is the latest edition of the Culture File Debate. This time we're inspired by the pandemic resilience slogan and hashtag, We Will Dance Again. But to the business at hand and what I'll just go ahead and call the normal Culture File, which this week features choral acts of remembrance with US composer Sarah Rimkus, Jeremy Till on post-scarcity art, and a moment of radiophonic poetry from Eve B. Golden. But we begin with this guy and this question. Were you even in a pandemic if you didn't take your seat for one of Darkfield Radio's streamed productions, the one where you were a vampire or you had your partner replaced by a demon? Darkfield Radio, a season of uncanny binaural... His dramas, even the right word, provided some of the past year's most uncanny theatrical experiences straight to your smartphone. Now it's back with a new season. The project, technology, new genre has its roots around the turn of the old century when directors David Rosenberg and Glenn Neath first came together. Before they began creating smartphone shows through the streets of London, they first created a shadowy 70,000-square-foot arts venue hidden in the tunnels beneath London Bridge. So when Culturefile got the pair to talk about their work, we began with the question, whatever happened to that? In the end, it seemed that having another uh, Pret and a a Cornish pasty place (laughs) seemed to be what what was preferable for the powers that be in London Bridge. As it happens, that got you out of the the venue business before there was a pandemic. So, you know, you, you're one up on Andrew Lloyd Webber anyway. Not a great time to, to be owning venues. However, you know, we do have our own micro venues. So we've got four shipping containers in storage waiting to go up and be uh, filled by terrified audiences. You find yourself in the park you do have perhaps the best solution to pandemic theater you kind of cracked the idea of giving people an experience that somehow equated that gave you the feeling in your stomach that you would get from a live performance that none of the the national theater video streams etc did so tell us about what it was that you you started to offer but we we wanted to maintain this idea of events which is why we those those first shows had two people taking part in them so that there was a sort of sense of preparing for something with somebody else so that so it maintain this element of a communal experience and we also set it at a certain time so that it so that it felt that people had to stop what they were doing and 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 make time to do the thing that you know that we were putting in front of them this idea of of um immersive experiences at home i mean there's a lot of incredible experiences on with uh, vr but it requires quite an investment in kit and we wanted to make these very deeply immersive experiences that uh, were pretty accessible to anyone. So all you need, all you needed for these was a phone and a pair of headphones. The barrier to entry was pretty low. Two people who have known each other for however many years sit on either side of a table. One of them has been replaced by a demon whose intentions are unclear. The problem with a lot of audio, or a lot of way people people consume audio, is that it's generally a medium in which you are also doing the dishes or driving or something else. Audio is very rarely something that you'll pay attention to and that's all you're doing. But for these shows, it was important that the audience would 
close their eyes, lie down or be together with a partner. And that's all that, that they were doing at that time. And they weren't also trying to watch a couple of other episodes of something on the TV and uh, some housework and um, their tax. We, we had spoken about doing uh, something along these lines probably a year, a year or so before the pandemic. David already was working, he went to work with this other company that already had an existing app. It was called Wiretapper and it was initially made in order to present performance in public space. And that's how we used it in the past. For example, we had a performance that was in Trafalgar Square, where the performers were kind of hidden amongst the general public. So if you weren't listening to the sound, it it wouldn't really look as if anything out of the ordinary was going on. One particular moment of that was one of the pieces of audio was train announcements. And it, and it was a feeling that I've had again with your work when you become absolutely convinced that that thing that you're listening to is happening in the world and not just inside your headphones. Tell people what binaural audio is there for people who have no idea. Essentially, it's just a means of recording audio that places microphones where ears would normally be. So when you listen back to that audio wearing headphones, you are listening from the perspective of where that microphone was placed. It's a technology that's very old, but over the last few years with increases in in the microphones themselves and also in headphone design, so generally people have pretty good headphones now, it's a, a very effective way to give audiences this incredibly three-dimensional spatial sound environment. And now that the demonic copy is disposed of, my real partner can come back. The technology exists, but the challenge then, I guess, is to move away from the fairground element of things where you can impress an audience and then work out how this is, uh, how to leverage this in storytelling so that the story becomes kind of a primary concern rather than just the, which, which I think happens in VR a lot, rather than, wow, this is an interesting technology. And that's, you never really leave that sensation. Whereas I think in your work, you do leave that behind. The decision that we made was to not take the audience into spaces that you could create very well with binaural audio in the same way as you can do with VR. You can create a world, you can record in a jungle and it sounds like you're in the jungle. And, and the, I think the key thing that sort of set up all of our work since is that we decided not to leave the room. The recording that you're listening to is all taking place in the space that you're sitting in. So that we started to then play with the idea of what the other audience members might be saying or doing or and just playing with with you know inc almost incidental sounds actually just to constantly ground the audience in the in the space that they're they're really sitting in you become aware of an event that has happened that you deeply regret you also become aware that you have set into motion a mechanism by which to attempt to reverse that event there is a kind of element of mind hacking it's theatre, but there is this thing that somebody is getting in and, and uh, playing with your consciousness in a way that maybe great theatre does. But here, it, you kind of see the scalpel or something. <laughs> I, th I think that the idea of that, I really like the idea that with this this idea that you're, that you're improvising the characters into existence, this idea that the show wouldn't happen unless the audience member were, were, were thinking it in the moment. With our shows, like with this show not, even though essentially it's a, 
a recording that you listen to in different environments. You really do need to be there. It doesn't exist without you. It exists on a server somewhere without you, but it, it has absolutely no meaning without you. David Rosenberg and Glenn Neath, their co-directors of Darkfield Radio and the new season of immersive dramas Not, booking now at darkfieldradio.com. Next, a reminder of some of the ways of thinking that could prove useful as we hold tight for the post-pandemic pivot. Jeremy Till is head of Central St. Martin's, London, and was co-author of The Design of Scarcity. That 2014 essay come manifesto looked at what artists and designers might contribute beyond creating objects that inspire ever-increasing consumption, imagining a world in which artists might even invent policy to navigate the bylaw jungle and activate public space in our cities. Timeless so. Desire at the moment is marshaled by the marketplace. So desire is simply tied up within issues of consumption. I desire to consume more. I desire that object. We need to you know, rescue desire from that very that stranglehold of a very limited understanding of what it might be in, and, to, and to place it within other forms of desire, desire for better ways of living. Practically, how do you go about that? Is to, is to just interrogate endlessly the way in which scarcity is constructed and then to try to intervene in that. Newcastle, New South Wales in Australia. The city centre was completely empty because there were really stupid, stupid legal and zoning and planning requirements about the use of space. And all that um, Renew Newcastle did, Marcus Westbury did, was to go in to understand what was constructing that scarcity, what was constructing the scarcity of access to space. And it was very simple. He just understood it was a legal framework. He's an artist, but what he used was his imagination to unlock all those systems. And then in unlocking what constructed the scarcity, he made an abundance of space available to to artists and, and the creative types. Now, it's a very direct example, but I think that it's a good example because it shows that you're not, you're always kind of burying down and down and down to try to find what constructed the scarcity in the first place and then to intervene imaginatively. What's happened recently, particularly in the architectural field, is that they've become pretty much reduced to designing facades for the spatialization capital. So what I mean by that is is that, is that buildings effectively have become spreadsheets in which you extract as much value out of the plot of land as possible, whether it's housing or offices or whatever, and then you dress it up with, with nice facades in order to get it through planning. And that means that the whole role of the architect has been severely diminished. Architects have become one of the means by which you can keep extracting more out of less. There's an interesting Dutch critic called Roma van Thurn who talks about fresh conservatism. Uh, and what he means by that is, is that architects in Holland in the, in the early 2000s were, were kind of wrapping up and producing these fantastically kind of wild, avant-garde, fresh forms. But actually they were leaving the underlying forces of 
conservative forces of capitalism completely unscathed. And in doing it in an avant-garde manner, by doing them in a fresh manner, it made those forces look fresh themselves. And that is the story of Apple. That is the story of the the design-led commodity process. Yeah, which is why designers do need to think pretty hard sometimes about about what they're doing and about what what their purpose is. So if their purpose is simply to produce more desire, then they probably have to ask questions of themselves. We need to think really hard about what is the role of the designer, which is a deeply political question. It's not simply an aesthetic question. We need to get back to those questions. And, and I think that's what we're trying to do at Simpson Martins, that we, you know, we're not talking about products as, as things of beauty. We're talking about products as part of a, of, of, of a social process which has a beginning and an end. It's a strange conundrum we're in, in as much as the creative industries are the only expanding industries within within the UK at the moment. They are the second biggest industry after finance. And yet art and design schools seem to be in some way pariahs. It's clear that standard models of thinking are failing us. It's called 2008. It's called the crash. It's called business schools. It's called the poverty of economic thinking. And so what alternative models of thinking have we got? And I, I would strongly argue that the alternative models of thinking we've got are emerging from places like this. They're not emerging from philosophy departments because they still tend to have a degree of abstraction about them, whereas designers and artists are always working with the here and now. Inevitably, they're working both with their hands and their minds. These forms of thinking expand way beyond the designs of cups and saucers or or nice paintings to hang in galleries. They actually are to do with the way that we may rethink, you know, the future society. And designers and artists have, I think, a huge role to play in that. So it's not just about an economic argument, the creative industries, though that is important, clearly, but it's about a more ambitious thing, which is how do artists and designers contribute to the debate about societal futures. The recent programmes that have been and and articles about the art school have mythologised a a period of art art history in the 70s, which actually, if you talk about most people who were there, it was full of drunken, drunken men... It was incredibly unprofessional. You might get one or two. And inevitably there has been, in the expansion of the art school, there's been more and more bureaucracy, more and more kind of accountability, et cetera, et cetera, and more and more professionalisation of it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's suppressed imagination, which is what the mythology of the 70s is. is It was kind of pure creativity. I don't believe in that. Part of the problem, maybe, was accepting this role in the creative industries to immediately say the balance sheet will be part of what we're talking about, and and, and that might be the beginning of a of a problem for the sector, for art schools in general. Yeah, it may be if if you are tied simply to the the words of the creative economy. But I think that what one sees within the relationship of art schools to the creative industries and the creative economy is they're being reinvented the whole time. Our students aren't there in the service of the creative industries. They become the creative industries themselves very quickly. So it acts in a rather different manner than, say, a business school. If you come out from a business school, you are going into the service of the market economy. You're trained to do that. I don't see the creative economy as this, as this monolith which we have to serve. I see it as something which we are creating 
I would hope that what is happening is that those values are always, always being thrown up into the air. Jeremy Till there and his co-authored book, The Design of Scarcity, is available from the UK's Architectural Association bookshop online. It's Pride right now and no better time to spend some minutes in the world of LA-based activist artist Eve B. Golden and a piece of radio poetry she calls Stondal and Me. This is Eve B. Golden. Hi. I used to make art about fossilization, fixing memory in place, giving it structure that reflects the continuum and flux of its nature. I was always an overactive confessor, writer from childhood, spending lengths of time in my journals, longing and willing love to find me and stick. Searching for a thread to connect my past of losing at love to the present persisting notion of being entitled to love. All evidence to the contrary. I come from family, a lineage of lovers who could, who would, and who, despite their efforts, lost at love. To clarify, from a young age, I came to find that romantic and familial love are sport. And so I have likened myself to an athlete in agility and strategy. I want and achieve. And sometimes I desire and fail. The tournament continues. These sentiments still perplex me. At times, I feel like the limerent object is literally me. That what I desire is so potent within myself that I cannot access it without expressing it through confession or abstraction. The fuel and the reward are the same, perhaps. By speaking, writing, putting the power into the verb, love, I summon from within. I wish to live within that verb, enough to imagine and create containers for that which seems ultimately contained within me. Stendhal Salzberg's Mine Analogy of the crystallized hornbeam, likened in shimmer to the ultra-potent love fixation one has for another unbeknownst to them. In the way this material sentiment is as fixed in form as it is fleeting, shares a breath with my longing to preserve every moment that shimmers. The diamond dust on everything seemingly ordinary everyone seemingly achievable or destined to me. 
Over a period of time, I gifted these crystallized objects. My horn beams were old diaries and picture frames. I gifted these to friends as tokens of transformation and prayers that we might all be held contained within a shimmer of goodness and that nothing has to be truly fleeting until we put it down or away. Constance. Victory. Love. Radio poetry from Eve B. Golden there with Stondal and me. For U.S. choral composer Sarah Rimkus, the search for texts for her singers can take in everything from 17th century nature writing to TV documentaries to her own field recordings. For her work uprooted, the composer used her own interviews with survivors of the deportation and internment of Japanese Americans in World War II in the United States. Ahead of Chamber Choir Ireland's Irish premiere of Uprooted this week, Sarah Rimkus spoke to Culturephile about seeking texts and about finding something bigger than ourselves in secular song. Sacred choral music has played a big role in many, many people's lives and many people's musical upbringing and their relationship with their spirituality. So I certainly have a lot of respect for that, and I've been greatly influenced by a lot of sacred music. For myself, I I would not call myself a religious person. I've written sacred music, but of course, when I do that, I hope that I am speaking to themes that people who are are not just of one religious persuasion um, can can relate to. So that's that's kind of where I stand on that, I guess. The ability to tell a little bit more of a concrete story with music and to be able to communicate more concrete ideas uh, with language as opposed to music on its own, which is a a little bit more abstract. You can't do that quite as successfully with music on its own. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why I gravitated towards choral music. I want to choose texts to set which are interesting and relevant to people. So that's, that's a big part of my process. Sycamore was commissioned by a a great advocate of choral music in New York City, whose name is Lee Ryder. She commissioned the piece specifically for a concert that was entirely of Wendell Berry settings, actually. Uh, His poetry works really wonderfully in choral settings, and therefore there are a lot of available settings already. So that's one that hasn't been set so much. There's something very direct, but still very lyrical about his work, I think. That's, that's a big part of what I look for when I look at poetry. You want something descriptive and something that feels musical. The themes of, of nature and the environment, a lot of people, when they seek that spirituality and connection to something bigger than themselves, especially 
these days, that's one of the first things that people turn to. process of finding texts, research is definitely a big part of it. I write a lot of choral music, which necessitates finding a lot of texts. So I kind of have to always be on the lookout for things which might work well for pieces in the future. I have a lot of different sources that I look to for that. I look to poetry, to sort of historical events, historical figures, also sort of scientific pursuits or watching television uh, or watching documentaries. I've gotten a lot of ideas randomly from sources like that. For the text that I used for Uprooted, I actually interviewed a couple of women from my hometown. Uh, I'm from Bainbridge Island, Washington, which is an island in Puget Sound near Seattle. And the Japanese internment or the the incarceration of Japanese and Japanese-American people during World War II is a big part of the history of that area. There was a Japanese community on Bainbridge Island, and, and still there is. And they were actually the first taken away to Manzanar relocation camp in California in the uh, most desolate desert you can imagine uh, in inland California. I was actually commissioned by a choir in Seattle called the Esoterics, and the theme for the concert was the Secular Requiem. So all of the pieces had a a requiem kind of intent uh, and were intended as consolation um, or catharsis after loss, but without a religious component. Uprooted sets the words of two Japanese-American women from my hometown, which is Bainbridge Island, Washington. I met the two women uh, almost by coincidence, really. Uh, I met the, the first one that I met, her name was Lily Kodama. I actually met her at the local history museum on Bainbridge Island. Uh, I, went, I went to the museum figuring that The folks there might be able to help me find somebody who I could speak to about about this and about their experiences. So I went to the volunteers at the museum and I explained who I was, that I was a composer. I was looking to speak to somebody for the purposes of a musical work. And Lily was volunteering at the museum that day and she said, well, you can talk to me. They took me away when I was seven. So, excuse me, it even makes me a little bit emotional to talk about it still, because it was quite a moment. So she was a young child uh, when she was taken with her family to Manzanar. When I spoke to these women about their experiences uh, in the relocation camps... A lot of what they talked about was, they sort of talked about it obliquely. You know, Kay talked mostly about the journey to the camp. I think that that was perhaps one of the things that she had the strongest memories about. And also, it's, it's a little more of a, a narrative to be told, was taking this journey to the camp, as opposed to the sort of daily grind of being incarcerated. I would not 
necessarily describe the women as angry. I would describe Kay as being very determined. Um, I think determined is the best word for some of the emotions that she still feels about it now. She's determined to continue to telling her story and determined to do whatever she can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again to anybody else. Um, she actually um, she passed away last year um, in August 2020 at the age of 100. So I'm, I'm very honored that I got to meet her when I did and continue telling that story. Um, hopefully I do it justice on her behalf. Sarah Rimkus there and Chamber Choir Ireland under the direction of Bernie Sherlock will perform Uprooted as part of their Shared Ground programme, which also features the Irish premiere of Shared Ground by English composer Alex Roth. The concert will be streamed from All Hallows Chapel Drum Condra, Dublin, tomorrow, Sunday 27th at 8pm. Booking on chamberchoirireland.com. And that brings to a close another edition of the Culture File Weekly. Don't forget, just over there, just next to this pod, there's your very own copy of the Culture File Debate, which, as I mentioned, is inspired by the pandemic hashtag We Shall Dance Again. So clearly we look at how dance might help us understand our world after the pandemic and helping us find some steps to take are Dana Casperson, Bernadette Divoli and Michael Cleon. That, too, is available via podcast right now. Shall we?